Coming to you from Beaumont, this is your house call. Today we're talking about a condition that causes one death every 12 minutes in the United States and takes the lives of over 38,000 Americans annually. Globally, roughly every 40 seconds, someone dies from this condition. And unfortunately, many people suffer in silence. We're talking about suicide. I was married to my husband, Rick, for over 20 years. We were college sweethearts, and he was a smart, kind, and handsome man. He was a successful professional and a very involved father. In the last year of his life, he became increasingly irritable and withdrawn, and he attributed that to work stress. And we talked about different ways of handling it, and I did know that he was in the care of a psychiatrist, although he didn't give me a lot of details. He was very closed with that. One day um, last year, he took his life. It was a surprise and shock to us all. Um, He left a note in his office that said, I love you all. Remember me for who I was, not for who I've become. Looking back, I know there were signs, and I can see a pattern of different things that were going on with him, and I just wish I had known more. Like any married couple, we had our share of struggles, but I think there were some very clear signs and symptoms that were going on with him that he did not, in fact, share with his psychiatrist that probably would have gotten him the type of care he needed and deserved. You just heard from one of our guests, Heidi Hannon. Her husband took his life 15 months ago. Heidi, thank you so much for your courage and for sharing your story. Hello, and welcome to the Beaumont House Call podcast. I'm Dr. Asha Shahjahan. Our goal is to give you information to help you and your family live smarter and healthier lives. Joining us today, Dr. Ron Samarian, Chief of the Department of Psychiatry at Beaumont Royal Oak, and also Heather Gutpel, Clinical Nurse Manager in the Department of Psychiatry at Beaumont Royal Oak. Thank you both for being here today. You're welcome. One of the biggest misconceptions about suicide is that it only happens due to mental illness. But suicide is rarely caused by any one single factor. In fact, more than half of the people who died from suicide didn't have a known mental condition. Dr. Samarian, why do people commit suicide? You know, what are the triggers and or um, conditions that would lead to that? First of all, uh, my condolences to Heidi, and thank you for being here. That's a a very large question, but very often you can boil it down in hindsight to the sense of hopelessness and entrapment that one experiences in that condition. You're correct to point out that half the patients aren't diagnosed with mental illness, but all are traumatized by their perspective that there's no way out of their condition. Uh, And very often they won't share that secret uh, due to shame or fear or even driven by anger for someone to do something as rash as suicide. Uh, We can see people that are clinically depressed that we have little easier access to because usually they show signs of depression such as uh, disturbances in appetite, uh, sleep dysfunction, low energy levels, irritability, as Heidi mentioned. They may change certain behaviors. They may gravitate towards substance abuse. And if that's the case, that makes the judgment even less likely to uh, sustain in a reasonable fashion for them to play out their life in a rational way. So let's say um, my best friend calls me and, and tells me that she doesn't feel that she's contributing to her family and she's a burden on society and the world would be better off without her. What would be my appropriate response to not trigger further ill feelings? Like what, what should I say to somebody like that? Well, first off, just the fact that you're having the conversation and that that person is reaching out to you is a positive. You certainly aren't necessarily going to fix all this person's problems, but what you can do is 
be an empathic listener, but you can also inquire, uh, are you thinking about actually hurting yourself? Do you have a plan to hurt yourself? Do you have weapons that you might use in the house? Are you that far along? You may get a response that, yes, I am, and yes, I do, or you may get a response that just says, no, I would never do that, but I'm just thinking I'm sick of life. Um, You can work in two very different directions with those two answers. But regardless, uh, if it's the situation where you're feeling that there's an imminent threat, you can say, let's keep talking. I would very much want some reassurance that we're going to get you some help today. And are you open to that? And hopefully they would say yes. And if they aren't, that's when you have to call the police. It gets to that situation where it may on the surface seem terribly ugly and upsetting, but you may be saving a life right there. That person may be angry with you the next day, but you can sleep that night and say, I did the right thing. I have to um, piggyback on Dr. Samaria and concur with him. Is um, You have to ask them right out, are, are you feeling like you want to hurt yourself, that you're feeling that you want to take your life? And you just have to be direct with the question. Um, and also ask them if you do have a plan. What, what, what are you thinking about? Um, and then either keep them on the line, ask them, you know, I'm, I'll come over and be with you, but keep that conversation going. And, right. and we do get calls on the unit like that, and that's exactly, you know, what we'll do, or we'll keep them on the line and we'll call 911 and have someone. Now, yes, will they be angry with you? They probably will, but like Dr. Samirian said, um, you know, you, you can save that life. I think that's one of the things that people are so afraid of doing. They kind of skirt around, well, I don't want to ask them if they're suicidal because is that planting that seed in their head? And from what you all are telling me, that seed may already be there whether you bring it up or not, and that by you bringing it up, you might actually be able to save that person. Yeah, you're not not planting seeds. You're you're being caring and concerned, and I think that's... uh, you know, demonstrating just the fact that you're having the conversation and to not ask is to show a lack of concern and a lack of caring. They may say that, you know, I, you know, I know I don't have a gun. I don't, I'm not going to hurt myself now, but if I lie down tonight and I don't wake up, that's totally fine with me. And we refer to that as passive suicidal ideation. And then that needs to be looked into as well. In terms of rates, um, we talk that men follow through with the act more than women do. Can you talk a little bit about the rates of women's suicide rising and overall? Yes, unfortunately, all the numbers are rising. Women do attempt suicide more often than men, but as we discussed earlier, unfortunately, men tend to use more lethal methods and succeed more frequently than women. But attempts can lead to successful suicide, so we have to take these all very seriously. When I see my patients in the office, they might be presenting with a different symptom. Very rarely do I have patients that come forward and say, I'm depressed, or um, I'm having anxiety, or I feel like I'm suicidal. It's usually I have abdominal pain, or I have back pain, or I'm here for just a checkup. And we have a tool, the PHQ-2 and the PHQ-9. Could you just talk about that um, briefly, about how that's used in the clinical setting and how patients, when they're seeing their doctor and get these questions asked to them, that it's an opportunity to maybe um, call out for help? Yeah, those, there are several different types of tools we can use in the office that screen for depression. Uh, they can help lower the incidence of suicide and increase the likelihood of treatment for depression. But there again, that's dependent on the honesty of the patient answering those questions. Uh, I think what that really does, though, is open up the avenue for a conversation. And when you begin that conversation, that's when you have a great opportunity to explore further how serious a person's desperation is and what and what cannot be done about it. You know, my patients come to me saying that they feel like depression is a character flaw or that it's a weakness, but none of that's true. And, and, you know, in fact, we know that it's an illness that affects the way that we feel um, and function. It's no different than heart disease or cancer. Can you speak a little bit about the chemical imbalance that occurs in the brain with depression and why it is really truly is a medical condition, but often not people see it as more of a weakness? Yeah, there's a uh, there's multiple neurotransmitters, but there's a, the, a hormone cortisol. It's the stress hormone that is fairly readily measured uh, in a scientific sense. And we know that when we're stressed, there are increased levels of cortisol, which then can secondarily affect neurotransmitters such as serotonin and norepinephrine in uh, 
an absence of which or a diminution of which can cause a clinical sense of depression. And absolutely in biological change, their ability to think straight and to act what we would call normally. You know, I, I think about, even for myself, I've experienced depression at various points in my life. And um, what I had learned in medical school is that you have the limbic part of your brain that's more of your emotional emotional chamber, per se. And then you have your prefrontal cortex, which works a little bit more on reasoning. And what happens in depression is that you have this voice inside you that's kind of lying to you and telling you things like, you know, no one's going to care if you're gone or you're a burden on people. And, and I, I tell myself that that's my limbic brain talking, my emotional response of what the situation is that's going on. And I sort of have to step out of that and say, okay, let's think about what my reasoning part of my brain is saying. Is, are these really true? And I think depression a lot of times can manifest in this voice that's lying to you in your head, and that's often why people feel like they're in this tunnel with no hope um, going forward and feeling like then there's no one out there for them, when in fact there's plenty of people probably out there that care for them and can help them. What's really frightening, and when you lose that ability to step outside and look at the difference, that's when depression becomes very dangerous. When you lose that ability to say, something's not quite right with my reasoning, uh, that's when it becomes potentially the end game towards suicide. And uh, I appreciate the difference between the emotion, we all do, between the emotional side and the rational side. And when the emotional side overwhelms the rational side, that reason diminishes to the point where it doesn't work anymore. And even when the outside person is talking to the person in a very rational, supportive way, it can bounce off because the defenses are very strong and primitive and or the, bio the, the biology overwhelms the reason uh, capability. That really uh, speaks to me because I know we talked, before my husband passed, we talked and I had experienced at different times in my life anxiety and depression and I have a lot of tools that I gained through talk therapy mm -hmm. and as a man he was not really open at all to talk therapy. His psychiatrist shared that with me after the fact. but. Um, I, I really felt moved when you mentioned that because I sat with him on the couch and tried to talk. You know, he clearly was suffering, and his reasoning, he, he changed jobs, and he didn't think he could do the new job. Everything, like his, his normal confidence, the way, that he, the way that he could tackle things was not there. And right. I just had no idea. I just thought, well, you know, you lose confidence. He had been in a job for 15 years and he was making a change and that's scary and hard. Sure. And, and we're getting toward 50 and, you know, this is a really hard thing. So this could be a midlife crisis. And I listened and I held his hand, but he, I think he had that loop. It was just playing over and over and there was no getting him out of that. Yeah, Heidi, it, it's interesting that you say that because, um, you know, as Dr. Samarian mentioned, there's different levels of depression. So if you're in the early stage of depression, you might be able to reason yourself out of it. Or if you might think to yourself, well, I'm thinking of it this way. And when you're dealing with someone else who's depressed, you don't seem to understand why they can't see the reasoning that you see. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of times when the judgment comes in of, you know, you're being irrational or you're you know, sort of the blame is put on uh, the person that's suffering from the more deep depression. Dr. Samarian, I had a question about, you know, you were saying that for, for you, Heidi, that um, talk therapy worked well for you and it seemed like for your husband it, it wasn't a good option for him or he didn't feel so. Men are four times more likely than women to die of suicide. Can you speak to that, Dr. Samarian? Yeah, sure. There's a, there's a perfect storm that may explain that. Number one, men usually use more lethal means of suicide than women, and therefore they're more likely to commit suicide when they act on it. Secondarily, and Heidi speaks to this too, you know, unfortunately men, I'm going to be a little sexist here, uh, aren't as good often with the emotional side of life, and they bottle it up and the shame issue enters into things, and if they feel like they're going to fail and they can't see past that, see no way out except a life of shame or failure, and put those two forces together, the sense of no way out plus lethal means, guns, etc., um, that's going to increase the rate of suicide. 
Do you find that you use different methods to uh, work with women versus men when it comes to depression? For example, uh, in my office as a primary care doctor, if I have a patient coming in, I feel like uh, my female patients, maybe because I'm female, we have a different rapport, are more openly willing to admit that they're depressed. Whereas with the men, I feel like they will blame different things, such as I lost my job, and so they think it's a temporary thing and are not able to see that it might be more chronic? Or so Do you have a different way? Yeah, of- no, I, I, I think you're right. And, and unfortunately, again, uh, this is, a, again, just a throwback, but I, I, I divide men and women into categories and say women have a problem with their anger. They don't express it often enough. And men have trouble with tears. So what men experience more often is anger that's externalized and or then ultimately internalized to self-destruction, whereas women tend to be a little bit better at emotional communication. They tend to bond a little better with each other, have better emotional support systems. That is obviously not to suggest that they don't get very depressed and commit suicide. They obviously do. But speaking to the differences, unfortunately, there's cultural biological reasons that might explain that. Suicide rates went up by 30% um, since 1999. It went up by almost half. Um, what attributes to this? Well, that's, that's the ongoing discussion now. And again, there's cultural and uh, financial issues. There's a loss of status in, in the male population, which is in some ways over time good. We're, uh, I'm, I'm sitting with uh, professional women <laughs> around me, which I can assure you 20 years ago would have been uh, a stretch. Certainly 30 years, 30 years ago would have been a stretch. Um, I think that is a benefit to society, but I think that's a threat to men in general, unemployed men in general. Um, so I think you're seeing a lot of suicides in those areas. I also think we might agree that some of the opioid crisis tip, uh, dips into some of those suicides. Some of those accidental overdoses aren't always accidental. Mm-hmm. So I'm sensing mm-hmm. we're seeing an overlap there too. What is your thought about the, the decreasing connections that we are experiencing societally too? I think that for me is very frustrating because my husband, um, he was always into video games and that carried through into his adulthood. But once the iPad came about, he just kind of dove in and we really lost him. He began to spend, in his case, he spent over $10,000 on virtual gems. Mm. And then I know he would feel upset and shamed by that because that would not be something he would advocate and he was very good with our money so i and and so then i i remember feeling sad one day when i looked over and he was on his ipad and he was laughing and clearly texting with someone else and kind of talking and i couldn't remember the last time he had kind of laughed and engaged with us in that way yeah and that made me very sad and i and i did mention it to him but it was kind of lost on him. That's a, that's, again, that's yeah, a very valid point. I, that discussion's ongoing, and the lack of connectedness, the breakdown of the social and familial fabric is part of the discussion. Um, you know, that sounds, sounds like that addictive behavior. It's so much fun. It's so intriguing. But the cost is loss of relationship. And to really simplify it, since many of you have had children, when you think about your little children separating from you, how threatening that is. Separation of a child from an adult feels like a death experience. That is frightening and panic-stricken child that's experiencing that. We grow up and if we feel disconnected and we feel we will not reconnect, we can have that same kind of hopeless panic feeling that puts us in a position to start becoming very depressed or suggesting there's no other way out except suicide. I think also um, your point, Heidi, is that a lot of people hide behind social media. So there's this um, kind of front that you can pretend you're happy online so that there's there's no red alerts going on to, to signal that there might be something wrong. Right. Um, and also it's a lot easier to communicate with people over text um, because you can stop communicating whenever you want to. You don't have to have this ongoing conversation. There's not that facial expression reading that if – your husband was trying to communicate with you, you would be able to tell maybe something was wrong. Right. And so withdrawing and having that social connection via text message or a social media where you're not seen for really who you are, you can portray whatever you want to portray and, and there's no um, invasion of 
finding out any kind of secret of sorts. And I think although social media has been a great tool for things like advocacy and um, spreading word about great things, it can also be very dangerous. There was a, a music video that came out by the artist Logic. I think it came out last year. And some of the lyrics from the song is, uh, I feel like I'm going out of my mind. I'm losing my mind. Who can relate? And they have the suicide phone number on it, the 1-800-273-8255. And the video was filmed in, in the lens of the LGBTQ population. Um, and LGBTQ youth are five times more likely to attempt suicide compared to heterosexual youth. Can you speak, Dr. Samarian, how suicide affects youth, not only minority youth, but just youth in general, and how that might differ from the adult population? Yeah, we can all appreciate youth uh, are, you know, they are works in progress. And um, emotionally, again, they may struggle with immense issues that seem magnified. Uh, if you think about Romeo and Juliet, the original Western canon of suicide, you're talking about 16-year-old teenagers. And the loss of relationships, the status issues can be extraordinarily important uh, and very impactful on an individual if they start going poorly. Do you think that, you know, just as parents talk to their kids about drugs and alcohol and car safety, which are all leading causes of death in those under the age of 18, that suicide should be something that parents talk to their kids about, regardless if they suspect depression? Go ahead, Heidi. Well, I this is something I've been forced to discuss with my kids, but I almost want to reframe it in that our mental health is what we need to be talking about, our feelings, how we are, because there are we have to practice this early and often with our kids, letting them know, you know, when something feels off, it's okay to to talk to someone out about it, or write in your journal, or you know, find a safe place. So I, I feel really strongly about it. And sadly, I, I don't know all the mechanics about talking to youth about suicide. I know that can be tricky, especially when it deals with friends. But unfortunately, I did have to talk to my children about it. And I was lucky enough to be able to meet with a therapist prior to breaking that news to them. And one thing that I felt was so helpful was that therapist breaking down that idea of it being an illness just like a heart attack. And so I was able to say to my children, dad had a heart attack in his brain and it caused him to make a choice he would have never made and he didn't want to leave us. But so we have to start talking about it as an illness and this is a consequence of the illness. I think that's very well said. I think um, also Dr. Smirian and I spoke about this before is that with our youth and our children, um, to help them really recognize the feeling. So many times we talk about anxiety, we talk about depression, but are they feeling that? Are they feeling sadness? Are they feeling tired? Are they feeling just sad? Um, so I think we have to help our children really look at and define what we're feeling. And I, I really truly think it's okay to ask them if they have had thoughts of suicide. Um, it's important and to talk about their friends and if they have that discussion. It's okay. It's, it's hard as adults to talk about that because we, we, we'd never want that to happen to any of our, our loved ones, our children, our husbands, but, and we are afraid of that conversation, but it is important to ask them. Um, I, almost don't, I almost feel like we don't have a choice now, too, with all of the high-profile suicides and then even the numbers that, of young people that are increasing. So we have to talk about it. It's a hard thing to talk about, but we do. We have to. I think a lot of moms have the question of, you know, either their kids are teenagers or they're off in college, and they'll notice um, their teenager sort of withdrawing from them. When should a mother be concerned? So an example is, you know, all of a sudden you see your child sleeping, you know, days in and days out, or your child normally calls you and hasn't called you in a week or so, or when they do call you or you do talk to them, they're sort of dismissive and you feel this motherly instinct that something's wrong. When should you sort of panic and when should you sort of let things go? I always, I always say go by your gut. And uh, if you feel something is wrong, you follow up. And uh, I think as a mother, you know, your kids are going to be sort of irritated at you, but ask questions. Go sit on their bed to ask them what's going on and, and probe it a little bit and go up and, you know, give them a hug and a 
quick kiss on the cheek and go, you know, you're, I'm not too sure you're okay. Let, let's talk about it. And, you know, raising boys are a little bit different than raising girls. They're a little bit quieter. Uh, my boys do know that I'm going to probe until I'm going to ask questions until, you know, at least I get that gut feeling that they're doing okay. And, you know, there's been some times where, you know what, I, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to see you. Let, let's have a, I'm coming to take you out for dinner. And, you know, parents always pay and they always eat a lot. So it always works out financially for them. But yeah. I think that's an, an opportunity to just to connect with them because you have to lay your eyes on them, your own children, mm -hmm. to know that, you know, they're just, and even if they're struggling in school, you know, then you can help them. They go, you know, it, it, it's, it's okay. Um, just really quick, my one, my younger son, he was first year of college and he wasn't, he was struggling with his, his chemistry. He's like, I'm never going to get into grad school. It's like, honey, it's okay. If you fail, you fail. Let's just move on. But that reassurance, that support, that you're there for them and, and they're not on their own. I think that's really important. I had a friend who had a son who was away at college and she hadn't heard from him in a while. And when she would call, she kept getting his voicemail or um, they, he would speak very briefly and want to get off the phone. And she felt that something was wrong. But instead of um, sort of asking him over and over again what is wrong. She thought, you know what, I'm going to pay him a surprise visit. She came over and she brought food. And of course, he was happy to see the food. And she said she was able to use that as a way to sort of start the conversation rather than just constantly asking what's wrong, which might push away some um, teenagers or young adults. And so that was a good tool that she sort of shared with me that, you know what, I came over there, I brought food, and I wasn't there to talk to him about what was wrong, but just sort of to check in on him. Yeah. And I think that if they're irritated with you, it's like, honey, I'm, I know you're, but, the, but I need to know that you're okay. Right. Well, I think you just hit on something there that I think about is just that reminder, the connection, first of all, which is hard. It's kind of hard to connect with a 15-year-old boy. Yeah. Uh, but also that reminder of the unconditional love. And there is nothing that you can do that will change the way I feel about you. Just saying those words. Because, you know, they are going to get in trouble. They might skip their classes. You know, I'm hoping that whatever trouble comes along, it won't be too bad. But, you know, this is a time for them to press boundaries. And, and I don't want my son to feel too ashamed or afraid to come to me if, for example, a class is being failed or if he made a bad choice. I, I found myself saying that to both of my kids. There basically is, you know, there's nothing that you could do that would change the way I feel about you. You need to understand you can come to me, you can call me. I, I prefer to pick you up from a party rather than have you try to get a ride with someone. And, you know, I don't know if we're there yet, but I'm putting those words out there mm -hmm. just so it will be okay and non-threatening. I think reassurance is, is a huge piece. And I think for anyone, if you're dealing with a friend that's confiding in you or a parent that a, a child confiding in their parent is to give that reassurance back that they are cared for, that they are loved and they are valued. Because I think that's what we all sort of seek for in our lives. Mm -hmm. Am I heard? Am I valued? And when those pieces start deteriorating in our minds is when we go to that scary, dark place where that voice is lying to you. And so if someone does reach out to you and share that they might be depressed, one thing that is very helpful is to always provide reassurance that they are indeed loved and cared about, and it would matter so much to you if anything happened to them. And I think that's even becoming more important now because of the isolation that our kids are experiencing. You know, they put more stock into the number of likes that their mm -hmm. Instagram photo gets. So we need to be able to to really stop and make those connections, even if they, you know, seem uninterested, but even if it's just a, a little pat or a hug, but, and also just reminding them that, you know, we, we are here, we see you and there's nothing that you can do that changes who you are to me. So I think that loneliness too, like every, every young adult, any, every teenager at one point feels lonely. I mean, it's the it's a progression of life. It's the they're dealing with their emotions and they're up and down and girlfriends and boyfriends or sexuality. And at one point they may feel lonely, and they need to know that, you know, there's one person that is, is will love me whatever I do, whatever I say. And um, as parents, we can't be 
tiptoeing ar around them. We need to be right up in front, and uh, whether they like it or not, we're there for them. I had another question regarding just common conditions that are sort of red flags for being more susceptible to having depression, such as postpartum depression or menopause, being elderly. Um, can you speak to that about what are some conditions that maybe if you're experiencing, you should be aware or that you might be at higher risk for depression? Or a family member might think as well that, hey, my, my loved one might be at a higher risk for depression to sort of be on alert for. Sure. Uh, you know, we, we can look at the sort of the red flags. Uh, single people are more likely to commit suicide than married people. Uh, people with guns are more likely to kill themselves than those without guns. Uh, substance abusers more likely. A chronic illness of any kind is, is obviously a stressor. And, and uh, financial changes, significant financial changes, anything that really uh, would commonsensically put someone in a difficult place. We want to look for those markers. And sometimes they add up to critical points, and we really want to address those. We're talking about depression and that it occurs in different phases and cycles, and that it can start out as just a feeling of apathy or a low mood, and then it can become more severe where you start having suicidal thoughts and then maybe advancing to actually having a plan for suicide um, and thoughts that you feel like you have no way out. Did you see that in your husband at all, those kind of various steps? It's very interesting. I It's hard to take apart what is, is the normal behavior of someone and, and then to try to pinpoint where something went wrong. So, of course, in the last year or so, I've been replaying everything in our life and trying to pinpoint where... Where did it start? Where did it occur? How, you know, what was the change? And so it was difficult with my husband. He was 6'4", and he was, he, he liked, he loved the outdoors and nature, but he also always needed downtime, and he always needed to retreat. He could be very social. He was the president of his fraternity, but he also was really kind of introspective as well. So piece by piece, I feel like he just started becoming more and more that quiet person, that one who needed to withdraw. And I didn't, there were times when I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe this is problematic. But I, part, part of me thought, well, this is who I married, and he's just becoming more of who he is. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, too, one of the things, and, and I'm going to, in the name of fighting stigma, just put it out there. There were some things. He, he actually, we had talked about going to therapy. As I mentioned, mm -hmm. I had done about three years of therapy, honestly thinking that maybe there was something wrong with our marriage and that, you know, and I had asked him to do couples therapy and he wasn't up for it. Well, unbeknownst to me, he had been in therapy since 2011. Wow. He never shared that with me till probably 2014. And he had gone through a series of different medications. What he did not do was share some other behaviors that I had seen bits and pieces of over our 20 years. And some of those behaviors are the addictive video game playing, mm -hmm. and then the sporadic spending and on impulsive spending on large items. And, you know, as I went back, I could see more of a pattern. He kept all of the finances under his mm -hmm. wing. And so I never really knew, but I knew in the last year of our marriage that our finances weren't good. And, you know, for some reason we had a lot of debt and I asked him, are you gambling? Well, it came to light that it had a lot to do with uh, different things, boutique hotels, when we were going on vacation, just adding up, buying a sailboat, things that he really would never, he, he was very frugal for the most part. So that was one. And then the other one that's even more difficult to talk about, and I know people don't want to talk about it, and I wish he would have talked to his doctor about it, was hypersexuality. There were some triggers, and, you know, he was... We that department was fine in our marriage. It was always good, but it changed, and some mm -hmm. of the behaviors were uncomfortable. And then I noticed after um, his death a lot of really upsetting activity with re related to what you can find online and, and so forth, and it became very dark and very um, also very 
impulsive. Like it would be three days of, you know, eight hours of this and then nothing. So there are behaviors and things that are more serious that I think he, he probably was very embarrassed to talk to his psychiatrist about, but he knew that, that something was changing with him. And, you know, that's, that's something that is really sad to me that he couldn't, you know, face that. And I did, I, I was able to go in and speak with his psychiatrist and he confirmed that what Rick presented always was that it was job stress you know, and he, mm-hmm. he was high functioning. He was, he had a great job and he made millions of dollars for Dow Corning every year and he did well. But, and so I think too, when the doctor sees you walking in and you are still working and you are still managing to get out of bed and so forth, and you just say, I have a little anxiety. Oh, that drug's not really working. If you're not, if you're not being completely honest, they can't help you. But also I think, for our health professionals, we need them to maybe dig a little deeper. Maybe this, maybe since I've been seeing this guy since 2011 and he's still not quite feeling right, there might be something else going on. Right. I think deflection is a master tool that many of us use. We try to explain this is why this is happening. Like it's, I just got into a new marriage or I just had children or I just lost my job and that's the reason for, but I'm very happy that you shared the things that your husband was going through and those things that he might have noticed if, you know, if it was pornography addiction and starting playing a lot of video games, doing kind of more um, isolating activities and not reporting them. So if you feel like you're someone that's struggling with something like that and you're noticing these changes in yourself, but you're too embarrassed or not sure as to why, you know, really self-reflect and and think about maybe sharing this with a physician or your psychiatrist. Well, if I may, Heidi, that's a a very tragic but interesting and important point. Put some of the onus on the mental health worker that if things aren't getting better with, let's say, different medications, which they don't, sometimes they don't, but it's... It should be incumbent on us to ask a little more uh, questions that have a little more depth and just put it out there in a safe way. Like, I know a patient that had a problem with this. Is there any problem? You might have that problem. Right. And it makes it a little safer for a person Find to open ways. up. Yes. Exactly. And I even wondered, and I asked the doctor, and, and I, you know, I felt like he was a lovely professional. Mm-hmm. I asked him at what point would he consider requiring or really pushing my husband to have me come in so that he could hear my perspective because I would have shed some light. And and of course now in retrospect, it's much more clear to me, but there were things I think I would have brought out that might have helped the situation. And then finally also I did ask whether he had encouraged and or almost, you know, highly suggested that my husband would talk to maybe go through talk therapy because that's another way to get you know those doctors are more trained that's their that's their job and he said he did suggest it but i and i i know completely that that was not my husband's thing so i get that but i think we need to be thinking about that what point do we want to really mandate some sort of um adjunct therapy if we are going to be giving the medications and they don't seem to be quite working maybe we have to dig a little deeper and do that hard work with the behavioral therapy You know, what I find as a physician is a lot of my patients have um, no problem um, saying that they have problems with anxiety. They all want, not they all, but I mean, in general, people are okay with taking anxiety medication, but they seem to neglect the, the piece of being depressed and either needing therapy for depression or needing medication. Did you find that your husband was on more anxiety medication than depression medication? Well, that is the case. And in, in when he finally shared with me that he was taking med- medication, it was for anxiety. And then sadly, shortly before his death, because he definitely, I did ask him, I'd say, you seem more anxious now, and you've made this job change, and I feel like you're getting worse instead of better. Have you talked to your doctor? And he did, and then he was actually put on a depression medication. Mm -hmm. And that, in his condition, was very dangerous because that put him into a different kind of mindset. And sadly for me, I didn't realize any of that danger. And he came home, and and now, in retrospect, my son and I even talked about it, he kind of, after a couple days, was kind of laughing and Oh, I'm so glad the doctor finally put me on a medication for depression. I feel great, you know, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, good, you know, that's that's great. 
But I think he was actually thrown into a whole other set of problems, and I just wasn't, I wasn't privy to it. And I'm learning. Like I said, I, I, I'm learning so much more now, and that's why I'm here, to hope that other people will learn and that we can learn together with Absolutely. our professionals. Dr. Samarian, can you speak a little bit about that? When you take antidepressants, there's always a risk of having suicidal ideations or worsening depression. Um, For people that are listening who might be afraid to take antidepressants, uh, can you sort of talk about that? Yeah, there's certainly the, by far, the percentage would be uh, benefited if they indeed fit the criteria for major depression to be on some sort of an antidepressant. However, there's a subtype of patients that may have a bipolar uh, tendency that actually gets them into the manic phase, which gets them to act irrationally and exuberantly. But there's also the possibility if a person feels better and they still feel that shameful trap or that financial trap, then they make the decision. It becomes easier to make the decision to go ahead with suicide. And that's why it's really incumbent, again, upon the mental profession when they see a rapid improvement to not just assume everything's fine to still ask questions about suicide, to still ask probing questions because patient either becomes manic if they react too quickly or they made a decision that this is the way out. I feel well enough to do this decision. That will solve my problems. But there again, this is so tragic and unfortunately so common that, as you can hear, there's lots of variables floating around here. But to your question... Antidepressants in in safe hands when depression is there is a much safer, much better route to go. But I totally agree with Heidi. Medications alone usually don't do it. There are personal and human secrets that we all live with. And if we can trust someone, a therapist, a spouse, a friend, that threat becomes diminished. And that's extraordinarily important to try that. If I could just add, Dr. Samarian, too, I think at a point that a patient is getting lots of medication changes, that it would be advisable to have an advocate for them at home that you might be, Mm -hmm. I know we have all the HIPAA requirements and everything, but if possible, if I had known that I should be watching for certain behaviors or something, you know, it could have helped. So, and, and again, Hindsight is twenty twenty, and yes. I, I see a lot more. But it's it's important. We have to know what these medications can do, and and the risks, and make sure that we're um, able to to have an advocate that's with us to make sure we're safe. Heidi, you and your family are survivors of suicide, and you know, quote unquote, you've been left behind. How did you guys handle this um, situation? You mentioned that you went to therapy right away. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you feel that you and your children went through a a deep area of depression yourselves? And and how um, did you deal with, you know, either the shame or the guilt and the anger and to prevent a secondary tragedy from happening? Well, actually, so when the, the officers came back to tell me what had happened, my kids were not home, which was Fabulous. (laughs) Fabulous. <laughs> and um, they had asked me what I needed, what they could do for me. And I had a good friend that was there with me, and I said, I need resources. And the officers were at a loss. They didn't know what I meant. And I said, well, I need, I need some tools. I need to know how to break this information to my children, break their heart without ruining their lives. I need to know what to do. And luckily, my friend heard me and clicked with him that we had fellow friends that were in psychiatry. And so he got on the phone and started making calls. Who can she talk to? And um, then my a friend was able to connect me with a local therapist uh, who had some experience with suicide and also with young children. And so... She agreed to see me at 6 in the morning, and I was able to get sleepovers for my kids. So it just happened to to work for me. And she gave me that tool, as I mentioned, of just letting them know that it was no different than having your heart fail, your brain failed. And And I was able to say... Dad has seemed a little different, hasn't he, for a while? And and they knew that. You know, I said, so it wasn't, you know, it's not something he did to us. This is something that he was in a lot of pain, and he saw this, 
in a very, very singular way as the way out of his pain, and he was not thinking about us. And these are all words that were given to me by the therapist, which were so helpful. And luckily, I've I've had, I guess it sounds strange to say luckily, but I've gone through a great deal of trauma myself. I'm a 13-year breast cancer survivor, and so I've I've participated in a support group for that, and um, I just have... I have tools, <laughs> and um, I also did, following meeting with that therapist, she had mentioned Kevin's song to me, and they are mm-hmm. a local organization that was just getting started, and she had mentioned, because I had the question of how do I deal with this with the larger community, with very close-knit community, but I just didn't want this to be a dark secret, and uh, the therapist had mentioned that she was at an event and had heard uh, one of the people involved with Kevin's song, Leo, speak, and that she thought he did a fabulous job of explaining it. And so I contacted Gil Urso and asked if there might be a speaker who would be willing to come to my husband's funeral and kind of put that out there. Mm-hmm. So rather than having an elephant in the room and whispering about what might have happened and, and stories, we were able to address it and we were able to make it a celebration of his life but also give people something to hang on to, to kind of understand and frame it in that way. This is a mental illness. This is nothing different than your heart disease or cancer, and we need to know more about it. How so absolutely powerful that, that you had the strength to do that, and it probably helped a lot of people too. I think it did, and they actually, I asked them to bring their table, so they brought some information there too. You know, I think that's just, you have to, you have to find your tools, and I, I had my kids most in my mind at that point, so. That's extraordinary. Kevin's song. So this is a nonprofit organization, and um, what what exactly do they do? Is it more informational? Like I know they have an annual conference, and there's right. some documentary film. Yeah. So it's newly. So Gail and John lost their son Kevin to suicide um, in March. I think it was two years before my husband, two or three. So um, the material I was given initially was from their first conference, which I believe was the fall of 2016. And so what they're doing with the organization is trying to promote awareness of mental illness and um, resources that are out there, and also just getting the discussion going and so that we can collaborate, get the professionals. I loved the conference. I went this fall. It was exhausting emotionally, but it was great because we had suicide survivors like myself. We have clinicians and, you know, doctors and people who have attempted suicide. That's a, that's a really important uh, group of people to speak with. So that's the mission is to really just kind of tackle it from every angle that we can and, you know, get support out there and just start talking about what what can be done and what we need to do to break the stigma and to prevent suicide from growing as quickly as it has been, I guess. Uh, Heather, you know, you've seen many patients and and dealt with many people who have suffered from depression and um, who are actively suicidal. According to the CDC, 80 to 90 percent of people that seek treatment for depression are treated successfully um, using either therapy or medication or both. Can you sort of walk us through that process of Uh, getting that extra treatment or help. So if, let's say, someone's admitted to the hospital for a suicide attempt, what sort of happens? Sure. Well, um, when they they see us, you know, they are sort of at their their deepest despair. So they've they've attempted. Um, We bring them in, and we work on both therapy and as uh, medication man- uh, management with our psychiatrists. And we have a lot of groups to being able to talk to them about you know, how to deal with their depression, how to deal with, go to that very minute, very simplistic level, and to be able to redirect your thoughts. Um, And we were able to, you know, help them through that. Many men, um, we see men, we see professionals, we see um, women, postpartum depression, we we see um, people that haven't had any uh, depression or mental illness in the past. And again, the stigma is there. I don't want my family to know. I don't want my work to know. Um, you know, I, I 
they're, they're ashamed. So that awareness, that um, ability to um, connect with um, somebody. So um, again, therapy is good. We, um, our psychiatrists help them on their medication management, and we always, always set them up with the next level of care. Since Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, there's been a flood on social media with the hashtag been there. And people share stories about um, being depressed and having suicidal thoughts. And so many of us have been there. I know I've been there. What, what can you do um, if you are in that spot of having depression or contemplating suicide? Where can you go? What are the next steps that, to get help? I truly think that you need to, to know that there are people out there and there are different avenues wherever you go to reach out. You can reach out to a friend. Um, a people that are on social media, there are groups that support for suicide. And we've had, I've known people that have been on a group um, that have reached out and have tried to explain how they're feeling. And that support group on social media will encourage them either to seek treatment at um, an emergency department, at a clinic, um, at a therapist, um, reach out to a loved one, reach out to a family, a friend, someone that can, if you can't get yourself to someone, that someone that can support you and get you to where you need some help. Um, if you do acknowledge that you need help, there's, there are the emergency rooms, there's the hotlines, um, and um, if you've been in the hospital before, there's hotlines on your um, after-visit summary that um, we are, we're putting on the after-visit summary if you've been in the hospital before with any, for any reason. Um, there are your church groups. There are the one, um, it's called the National Alliance for Mental Illness. It's called NAMI. Mm -hmm. They are a fabulous support group with um, information for someone that um, has any type of mental illness, has depression, bipolar. They have support groups throughout the, um, the, any community or county you're in. Um, at any time, um, different lengths within. They're usually people that have been there that will um, conduct the support groups and they have support groups for family members. Um, so there are things that are out there as well as, um, you know, we do have, again, our partial hospital program. If you don't need to be admitted, we have a day program. Um, that you can come in and you can you can call out of the community if you feel like you need some you know some help um, and then there's intense outpatient programs that if you can't you're working and you can't get there every single day there are some uh, programs that you can go for three or four hours several times a week the day programs could be really terrific for people that are ashamed with the idea of going into a psychiatric hospital making it appear that they're you know, out of work, while out of the loop, out of the social loop, and at the same time, for the first time maybe in their life, share with others that are going through some horrific experience mm -hmm. that they're not alone. And again, it gets that feeling of isolation or conversely, the absence of that isolation can really make a big difference. You know, it's not uncommon for people to say they're going to take a mental health day mm -hmm. and take a day off work. And how wonderful it is that you might actually have a program that could help in that way, in a real fashion. I think um, any workplace to have the EAP, the Employment Assistant Programs, I'm sure most companies have that. Um, and from what I hear, they're focusing a lot more on uh, mental um, illness and resources to the patient and the families. Can you speak to any resources or tools for people who maybe are just not not there yet, not comfortable to go seek help, you know, something like journaling or mindfulness. And what are some tools that people can do on their own, um, any self-help books or things that might help people get to that next stage of being able to reach out to, the, to someone? And another thing that I'd like to bring up is some barriers. Uh, many of my patients, they can't afford to see a therapist regularly. And they are waiting to get in to see a psychiatrist. And all this time goes by and then they give up or they think that this is just not going to work for me, or they go to therapy one time and maybe don't connect well with their therapist and sort of give up. I've tried therapy and it doesn't work. What would any of you say to those so individuals? As, a, as an illness, as a mental illness, I think we really need to rethink what types of treatments are available. I feel like it's very common for your insurance to not 
have very much coverage at all for any of these services. So I think that's incredibly frustrating. And we need to, and that, that I think supports the idea and belief that this isn't really an illness. This is just, you, you just, you're not able to control your thoughts or your mind. We have to, as a culture, as a society, have to have a conversation on where our priorities are, uh, tying it into the drug issue, the opioid epidemic. I, I can assure you that many of those people are treating themselves for depression. Uh, we're still stigmatizing drug use as a, crime, a criminal activity which in essence deprives people getting the help they need. Jails are filled with mentally ill people that should be treated as an outpatient. I mean, it's really something that we have to do more with our votes and our voices than anything we can do, in particular uh, with just a one-on-one -on -one situation. I think many, much of the community, too, is uh, are becoming on board. For example, Kevin's song and their conference. I attended that conference as well, and it was fabulous. Um, the walks, the mom's walk, the... Um, you know, the mental health awareness fair that we here had here at Beaumont. So if people or loved ones that feel like they have, they're seeing changes in their, their loved one or their child or their husband or their um, wife, that just to that start, just, just, just reach out for that pamphlet. Reach out. If you hear something, just walk by. Just get a little bit of information and that it only takes that small step and once you take that small step it's a little bit easier to take that next step um, but I think we are growing with awareness the stigma is still there it, 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 it's very much there but I think we're taking baby steps to um, be able to overcome that if I can just add one thing that seemed to help us get through not so much my kids I guess really it's me and maybe some of my husband's friends because I've shared it with them. We have, I have been reading some memoirs of mm -hmm. people at a wealth of knowledge. Some of them are more well-written than others, but just to really get that idea and that feeling of empathy and understanding the condition where, you know, I know in one I, I read that, you know, that exhaustion we hear about, are you spending more time in bed? It's almost like physical pain. I mean, we, to get that insight into what it really feels like. Another thing that was a common thread in the many, sadly, I haven't been able to sleep well in this last year, in the many memoirs that I've read, one of the common themes also is um, that after that failed attempt, Many people don't even can't even pinpoint why it was that they were going to do it, or there was no just you know we've talked about the fact that there is no trigger. It was just that overcoming that overwhelming voice at that time saying people are better off without you or whatever. And and you know 24 hours later they're so thankful that they didn't act on it. So right. I just think just having more of an understanding of what this is. Why are people why are people attempting suicide understand their story? I think that I helped ag me. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I, I, people ask me what kind of therapy I do. I just call it narrative therapy because the story tells the story. Uh, until you know what the story is of an individual, you can't understand them. And I, I so appreciate what Heidi's saying here that if you can get into someone's head and listen to their story, sometimes you can help them take the route that's going to turn out much, much better than if it's not aided with little empathy. Everything that you guys are saying right now are things that can be done immediately now for impact. Uh, it will take a long time, I think, to make a change in policy, and we all need to work towards that. But there are certain things that we can do today to have an impact on depression and suicide, and those are sort of the tools and things we're talking about, is just being able to talk about it openly. And, you know, Heidi, you sharing your husband's story, as painful as it was, has probably helped so many people, and we really thank you for that. And uh, Dr. Samarian and, and um, Heather, both of you work in this space and see patients every day, and you're so committed to what you do, but being accessible and letting people know what are the options out there and what can be done has helped so many of us. Thank you all so much for being here today and sharing your insights and your story. You're welcome. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. Thank you for having us. It's only through discussion that we can break the stigma around mental illness and especially the silent sufferers of depression, will only feel comfortable if we reach out to them and help 
understand what they're going through by putting ourselves in the shoes of others. Don't forget we're working on future Beaumont House Call podcasts. We're looking into how the I family has a role in bullying and different fad diets. What's good for you? We also want to remind you to send along any questions or suggestions to the podcast at podcast at beaumont.org. In the future, we'll answer our mailbag. We leave you today with this healthy thought. Suicide leaves us with endless what-ifs and devastation. Depression is not a weakness or a character flaw. It's an illness that is treatable. Suicide is preventable. This means we can do something about it. As stated earlier, 80 to 90% of people who seek help get better. You can make an impact today by breaking the stigma. Talk more openly about it by advocating for early interventions for depression. If you've never experienced depression or don't understand it, try to learn more about it. It puts you at a much better place to support people who are in it. If you've thought about suicide, think about sharing this thought with a friend, a medical professional, or family member. You may be surprised how much compassion and support will come your way. We're all here to help. The suicide hotline is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255. Together, we can all provide hope and be part of the solution and end this terrible stigma so that people can get the help that they need and deserve.